0: Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Stephan-Hagen,
1: I'm Steph Spencer, and I'm Lisa Adams.
0: We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious doubters and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are excited that you're joining us for this new adventure that we're on through the book of Ruth. And if you've hung with us so far, you know that we've spent a good deal of time covering chapter one. And now we have finally reached the moment that we've all been waiting for, chapter two. So Lisa is going to take it away. And If you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, then you're just missing it. So not that I'm not excited. I was just trying to be funny. So everybody, this is chapter two and Lisa's reading verses one through three.
1: I'm also mixing it up. I'm going to the Robert Alter translation. So oh, we're, gonna- Ooh,
0: we're getting we're getting risky. We're getting Are
1: sarcastic. We- not, he's not risky. <laughs> he's <laughs> delightful. <laughs> he's delightful. Okay. Um, and Naomi had a kinsman through her husband, a man of worth from the clan of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Let me go, pray to the field and glean from among the ears of grain after I find favor in his eyes." and she said to her go my daughter and she went and came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers and it chanced that she came upon the plot of boaz who was from the clan of elimelech all right so we are
2: transitioning
3: from this chapter that um has been about the story of the past to really Ruth, too, now starts to become the story of where is their trajectory going to go now that Ruth and Naomi are back in Bethlehem. And so, um, what, I, what I find interesting, I don't think I even really noticed it until Lisa was reading it out loud, is that verse one and verse three kind of are repetitive. Mm-hmm. Like, why tell us twice that this is Boaz from Elimelech's family? Uh That's one (laughs) question. They're really, really grounding
0: you in the idea that this is, I mean, my guess, my guess, right? My guess is that they're really grounding you in the sense that this isn't some like inappropriate relational dynamic about to take place, but that this is falling in line with custom and expectation because Ruth lost her husband who was the son of Elimelech. And so it makes sense that someone from the house of Elimelech needs to be responsible for this line of the family. And so they're doubling down on pointing out that Boaz is part of that family lineage.
1: Actually, it feels like though, that they're naming that Naomi is the lineage. Like it's interesting because it's like, it starts with Naomi had a kinsman. Like as much as it's going to be for Ruth, like Naomi's the, Naomi's the link because it's still clarifying that Ruth is the Moabite Mm -hmm. (laughs) like we're still clear that that Ruth is there um I wonder about um I don't know it feels like when things get stated twice you just really want somebody to pay attention Mm -hmm. like you want somebody to actually like take this in um I mean maybe it's for forward but maybe it's
2: for Yeah.
1: It's setting us up something about Boaz. Yeah. I mean, I think that let's, let's start. Cause Boaz is our, is our new
3: introduction here. And I think maybe one of the questions here is. Um, is where the divine intervention is. Um, so my translation in verse three has has the phrase, as luck would have it, this piece of land belonged to Boaz. So there's a way that she doesn't ask to go glean on Boaz's land. It's like the narrator is telling us, this guy Boaz exists. Then Ruth is asking to go glean and then she happens to glean on Boaz's land. Um, And that progression, I think, is sort of interesting to hold as we think about who Boaz is and what God might be doing here, what Naomi's doing here, what Ruth is doing here and how all of that is intersecting. Um, and so maybe we start by thinking about, um, this guy, Boaz, Jason, do you have a Bible in front of you?
0: I'm looking at a script. Yeah, I got a Bible. Yeah.
3: I'm curious about different translations of how he's described. So mine has a kinsman on her husband's side, a man of substance.
0: I have a uh, prominent
3: rich man. And what was Alter again? Uh, a man of worth. Okay, and my and King James has mighty man of wealth. So anytime, anytime our translations are saying different things, this is a good like indicator of ooh, let's dig into that word. What is going on for how he is being described?
4: <clears throat>
3: so in verse one, he's a kinsman. We'll come back to that idea, but he is a mighty gabor man ish
2: chayil. So,
3: chayil seems to be the question. Um, chayil is being translated wealth in my translation, and worth in, in alters translation. Worth is more consistent with where we hear this word chayil, um, I feel like this is a good, like, trivial pursuit moment for our listeners. (laughs) I'm like, have you heard the word chayil somewhere before? Because even if you don't know Hebrew, if you follow social media and conversation about uh, the late Rachel Held Evans, you would know the word chayil just paired with something other than man.
2: Dramatic pause.
3: (laughs) Uh. I hope our I
2: listeners
0: know what you're filling in because I don't.
1: I totally do. I have a tattoo. I,
0: Please share.
1: I know it's going to be like lift your tattoo. I didn't. Know, I didn't know how much time we give people to like answer and play trivia since they're not able to talk back. But I hope they're talking back. Um,
0: <laughs> they're just laughing at this point. Let's be honest. That's
1: right? They're like, get on, get on with it, you guys. Um. So esha uh, chayil. So for me, it's the it's the language of Proverbs thirty one, and Rachel Held Evans keyed me into like an introduction to some of the Jewish tradition about when it was like it was sung over women, and for me, it reminds me that it's something that we sing over women, like even for myself. To like that, like I've heard it translated like "woman of valor." So valor is probably one of the translations that I've heard. I don't see it in the text here at all, but that's what I've, I've heard like the Proverbs 31 being called like a woman of valor. Um, it's much more than that, but that's some of the, some of the stuff with it, but I feel like I I learned more about it in association with women in Proverbs 31. Um, so for those who aren't familiar,
3: Proverbs 31, 10, and, and the verses following have often been used in negative ways <laughs> towards women. But my translation says, Who can find a virtuous woman? is how that section starts. And it's who can find Ashet Hayil? Um, so Ashet being woman, Hayil being this word, Hayil, that we're now pairing with this man, Boaz. And it brings this question up that is, is part of why Proverbs 31 has been weaponized. What does it mean to be virtuous? What does it mean to be a person of valor or in alter's translation, a person of worth or in King James, a person of wealth, which is taking in a very different direction? Um, most of the time or it's translated as valor or valiant or strong. Or substance more often than wealth, so what does it mean to be a person of substance of worth, of valor of virtue?
2: I mean, those are all things that I would love if someone said about me,
4: mm-hmm.
2: and I would love to say them about people
0: like that just sounds like something that I would want to to say you know like i I could say that to the two of you, right? I could say that to a a number of people in my life, like that that rings true for me
4: Mm.
0: when I think about you.
2: Mm. Well, that's very kind, Jason.
0: You know, we have the humorous moments and then we have those "aw" moments that everybody loves too. So just sprinkling them all in.
3: Well, what I'm actually thinking about right now is like, we, there's a lot of conversations that have been had about like, I've got, I'm using my give me a refill the patriarchy as I'm going to fight itself mug today. But I'm suddenly, as we're having this conversation, thinking about how Rachel Held Evans did a lot in that conversation to help us understand Proverbs 31 differently and what Ashet Hayil, you got to get the good Ashet Hayil means for a woman. And I'm wondering if we could do the same thing with masculinity. And disrupt some of the toxic masculinity by saying, what does it mean to be Aish Gabor Chayil,
4: Mm.
3: a masterful man, a a strong, a mighty man of valor? What does that sort of strength look like if you were going to be an Aish Gabor Chayil? Could that be a tattoo as well?
0: (laughs) Well, and I think it's fascinating that the translations don't really help us all that much. I mean, they do, but they don't, right? Because if you translate it as a mighty person or a mighty man of wealth, that seems to line up with too many cultural expectations for masculinity is that you need to be the one that provides all of the financial security. And if you don't, you're a failure as a man, and you better not rely upon, you know, your spouse or your partner, especially, especially if that partner is a woman, like there's just so much like, you know, leave it to Beaver, you know, 1950s and back type mentality with that. Whereas if you're talking about worthiness, valor, valiant, you're talking about, cause those words don't just mean to me, at least they don't just mean financial stability. They, they mean something so much deeper about the character and integrity the humility of a human, of a person, of a, of a man. And, and so, yeah, I love that we can dance with the text a little bit to try to redefine that.
3: Well, because Aish Aish Gabor is more often, if it's just those two words, if it's just mighty man, then you might have heard people talk about David and his mighty men.
1: Mm-hmm. Like it's
3: often used in military strength to be mighty in a in or a mighty hunter, or it's paired in those sorts of pairings. So to then take mighty man, <laughs> that feels like so I'm like thinking mighty mouth, to pair mighty man with Chayil, sort of is bringing us the question, how will you use your strength and power?
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Boaz has strength and power, but he also has virtue and valor. What does that combo look like in a man?
4: Mm -hmm.
3: During the time of the patriarchy, where that might could be used in all sorts of ways, what does it look like to use it in a virtuous, valorous
1: way? Well, it feels like that's what we should be looking for in the text to see like, how Boaz has earned that title in the text, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't really know what he's done before this, but what we can see is like this this picture into who he is in his community. Because in lots of ways, I mean, I, <laughs> if everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, there actually shouldn't be so much hierarchical wealth in mm-hmm the land, because everybody has a particular part of the land, they're working together. And if you have debts, they're being forgiven, they're being grant, like you're, you're moving along together. And so to say, like, he's a mighty man of wealth doesn't necessarily track, unless he's taking advantage of other people. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's the only way to get wealthy is to take advantage of other people. And so I like I would, for me, it would be like looking into this and seeing like, what and I think it's interest. I'm just going to name this because I think if we hear that uh, to be a woman of like a woman of wealth in like even in the Proverbs 31, it like it talks about jewels and there. It's a different kind of wealth when we hear it in a feminine form and mm-hmm. when we hear wealth in a masculine form. So to even just think about what we carry in when we hear those things from our perspectives now. Is really interesting because it's, there's some tension of what we, what makes something worth, like
4: mm-hmm.
1: what makes a person of worth mm-hmm. um, past maybe than just being born worthy. Mm-hmm. Like what's, like what's being said here past some of our assumptions.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really deep.
3: <laughs> and maybe that makes it,
1: to me, that makes me
3: not want to use the word worthy, worth. Because I want worth to apply to everybody inherently. We all have inherent worth. And is there something more happening when we think about it as virtue or valor or substance on top of the worth that's inherent?
2: I would say yes, and. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, we're all inherently worthy. And we all make choices
0: that impact people and those choices impact our character and they impact how we are participating in the arrangement of society some of which is worthy of being applauded and being recommended and being um modeled after and some of which based on those human choices not their inherent worthiness as a human being made in the image of god worthy of god's love and you know the the presence of grace not not questioning that but the choices that people make sometimes are not worthy of being followed, emulated, looked up to, except we do all the time, right? Mm-hmm. People that are inherently greedy, that have a lot of earthly power and control and privilege, we tend to look up to them and, and we dub them worthy for the wrong reasons, regardless of whether their actions and choices are actually worthy to be emulated. And mm-hmm. so I... I agree with you. We got to be really careful about using that term because we don't want to question that inherent worthiness of being human and, and a child of God. But I think based on, I mean, Boaz is obviously a landowner. He's making choices about how he treats people with that land. And some of those choices are worthy or not.
1: What's interesting, Jason, is as, you, as you're saying that, like, so Strong's definition, if you like it, what it names for it is probably a force whether of men, means, or other resources, an army, wealth, virtue, valor, or strength. But I thought it's interesting to think of it as a force. And what are you a force for?
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Like there's something in there. There's something in, like you are yeah. a force. <laughs> yes. What What is it? What is your force for? Ooh, yep. and, and then, and then
3: uh, sorry, that makes me, I enjoy playing that with the gender conversation that we're having here is, what if we read Eshet Chayil as a woman of force? yeah mm. like because there's a way valor still sounds gentle yeah. and feminine sometimes to us, but to say this is force and and it's raising the question for us, how are we using the power we have? How are we using the force yes
4: um,
3: and for a woman or a man, is it pointed in that direction of goodness um is really um yeah, that's sort of a fun.
2: I love that.
3: Question to hold. (laughs) are we using our force?
1: I love that. May the force be with you. Is it like, (laughs) like there's a whole whole Star Wars link here, but I was avoiding that. I don't (laughs) know.
0: I was also going to say, this is a great plug for Patreon because we're going to create small group study guides that go along with this and you will get one if you become a patron on our Patreon page. And this question will be on there. What are you a force for? And that is one that is a great discussion question for people.
3: Mm-hmm. And it ties in, I can't remember if we talked about this in a previous episode or not, it's good time to repeat this, that one of the ways to connect Ruth to the book of Judges that comes right before is noticing that the last sentence in the book of Judges is about how everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so to read the book of Ruth with the question, what is each character doing and what does that say about what right and good looks like in that person's eyes? If that's what we're told it's like in that time period, what does good look like in Naomi's eyes? What does good look like in Ruth's eyes? What does good look like in Boaz's eyes? Mm -hmm. Um, And to say, okay, if he's this, you know, force and valor and strong, like what does good look like in this man that's being described this way?
0: I think that's so, really good. And 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 you know, and, and we asked the question, like what else in the text can we maybe see that is an example of this? Like what's giving him this title? And and maybe we're about to jump to this. And so if I'm if I'm jumping ahead like like a half second, then forgive me. But the idea of gleaning, I think is really important to point out here. And the the practice of gleaning and the fact that Boaz was participating in that practice at that
3: time. Um that is exactly where we need to go. So well, <laughs> well done. Great transition. Um, right. What is gleaning and what does it say about Boaz that he's practicing it? And also how are we hearing about this for the first time? Lisa, were you going to say something? Else?
1: Well, I would say before we jump, <laughs> can we ta- like, as you were talking about, like everybody doing right was in their own eyes. I'm curious then about the language of, um, when Ruth says to Naomi that let me go pray to the field and glean from among the ears of grain after I find favor in his eyes, like what does that find favor in his eyes? Like what does that mean? Does that oh. mean like pretty and like <laughs> like I mean there's a lot of like stories that we get told about what's happening in this tale. Um, we could follow rabbit trails among rabbit trails,
3: I think, but it's, but this is a good one because uh, your translation says favor, my translation says grace. So this is the idea. It's the word is hen. So that is grace. And there's a conversation that's the, if you know the name Hannah, that's Hannah. That's from the, it's a name that means grace. Um, But there's a conversation about what is grace because it's a word that we use a lot. And so its meaning gets lost because we use grace and blessing or words we throw around. What does it mean to find grace in someone's eyes is something that we have seen before. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord before he's asked to build the boat. Joseph finds grace in the eyes of Potiphar before he's asked to run his household. Um, this idea of grace in someone's eyes has been something that we've seen in the text before. So we could ask sort of what might it be meaning to Ruth to be looking for grace in someone's eyes. What is she looking for?
2: Where is that going to take her if she finds it?
3: How do you know when you have it? How do you know when you have it, and how might it actually be not what we think it is? Because even in those two examples that I gave, when you find grace in someone's eyes, the next step is you're given a job to do.
2: Which
0: we but, but pause there for a second because I think so often grace can feel like the what comes next as opposed to what comes before, and I I just think that it's really key to say like the grace is present before the the call or the the action is presented Mm -hmm. and I think that's a really important piece of this that grace isn't the result of someone's action but is the gift that's already been given
1: but it's also like I mean here's the weird thing though in all those stories (laughs) I don't think it feels like grace if you're Noah
2: (laughs) like in some ways like okay he gets to survive which can be a result of the grace but like he has to like build an ark and like do all like it's a lot of work and Joseph has to do some dances in Potiphar's house so I do I mean and like Hannah,
1: which Hannah gives her son up to the priest. Like, I don't know. I There feels like in the, like, yes, grace is given maybe freely. <laughs> like, I feel like that's a very christian term that I hear all the time of like, it's freely given. You know how like when you're a parent and people give you a gift that has to be put together? Yeah. Like it's a great gift, but then you have to put it together like it feels like there's something in it that there's something afterwards it's not just like it's not like you get the gift and it's all put together you have this gift of grace and now there's
2: some stuff you get to do with it I mean my response like sorry Steph go ahead no go ahead I want to hear your response <laughs> I mean so, like okay i want to pause my response and 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 I'm gonna preface it by saying
0: yes. Yes, everything you just said is unbelievably true and painful and hard. Giving up your son, building a boat and being shamed for it, having to work as a slave or a servant in someone else's house and having to get accused of adultery or rape or whatever when Joseph went through in Potiphar's house. None of that sounds pleasant. Or desirable, and then there's a, and then there's the, my response of, yeah, this world in its current construction can kind of be a shit show, and now we get to put the e on this one, and I'm super excited about that, but like, yes, it's grace, and there's work to do, like, like I don't know what I mean. There's a part of that's like, well, what else would there be after grace? other than getting to the work because I'm not satisfied with just getting the grace. I'm now participating in the renewal of all things, which like roll up the sleeves and get ready to, you know, kind of go through hell and back, like, which is literally what Jesus did. So
3: hold on. I just want to pause and say what you said is an obvious thing. How many people is that obvious to have I understood grace? to mean now I have the opportunity to participate in the renewal of all things. Now that I've been given something, I have something to do with it. I get to do something with it. Versus now that I have it, I'm going to keep it for me, check that box of I'm going to heaven and live my life as if nothing has changed. Right, grace has often, for many of us, I think that's again a good conversation question here: of how have you understood grace and what it means to receive grace, and have you ever thought there might be something to do with the grace you've received? Um, It reminds me of the parable of Jesus that Jesus tells about um, the debt and the um, the the servant who owes a debt to the gracious. It might even be gracious or merciful. A landowner,
4: yeah.
3: Um, and that and that landowner forgives that debt, and then that person walks away and starts fighting with somebody who owes him something. And the landowner gets mad in response to this parable because it's like, you were just given this gift of forgiveness, and now you go out and you choose not to forgive that debt. Like, and so, and then that guy ends up in prison. (laughs) Um, because the guy's like, well, I'm not gonna forgive your debt anymore if that's how you're gonna treat now that. starts to make grace feel a little conditional so but but that idea of like if we've really received it shouldn't it change us um and what might that look like if if in this story if Ruth receives grace in someone's eyes how is that going to change the trajectory of her life if she receives that grace
0: yeah and and again i want to really emphasize like i don't want to miss the fact that There's tons of pain in these stories. Like, I don't
2: want to miss that because in the middle of participating in what God is up to can be the most painful thing possible. And that's the real. And I just want to hold that too. And I think Lisa's doing a
0: great job of holding that. So I just want to honor that.
3: Well, and maybe we can take it back to how we see. Boaz as this Aish Gebor Chail is to say is he the kind of person who is going to give someone else grace because that's she's looking for grace in a person's eyes in this story mm-hmm. um is Boaz going to be the kind of person who uses his eyes in that way who use who sees who sees Ruth mm-hmm. and in response to seeing Ruth she finds grace in his eyes Versus all of the other things that a vulnerable foreign woman could find in, in a powerful man's eyes.
1: I mean, that just feels like something that is worth pausing to say, like, do people's experience of you, would they be able to see that you see things through eyes filled with grace? Mm-hmm. Right? Like that, that's how you see other people. That's how you see the world is through eyes filled with grace.
0: Yeah, I mean that that really I love that question Lisa because I think the world would be so much it'd be such a better place if we just assumed that the people talking to us were doing the best they could with the best of intentions and not always with selfishness, greed, lust, you know, trying to one up me, trying to take advantage of me. If I think that they're doing all of those really negative things, then whatever I hear come out of their mouth, I I just Ooh, even if it's something nice, I'm like, what's your angle? Right. Even if you're saying it really kindly, I'm like, what are you trying to really get out of me? And and the the problem isn't that I do this with like somebody on the phone trying to sell me some insurance I don't need. The problem is when I do it with my wife, right? The problem is when I do it with my brother. The problem is when I do it with my best friend. And I think, what are you really trying to get out of me? And it's like, I should assume the best and start there. And then if and if it really isn't grace that you're actually offering here, then we got something to talk about but I want to assume grace from you because like we're in this dynamic relationship. If and so if we assume grace, it, it, it I don't know, well, it moves us in a direction that could be really healthy.
3: Yeah. Well, I want to add a verb. To, I want to add a verb to this for how we think about what grace is. Cause we're just, we're, we're using the word and it might help. Um, so there's a action. Ken as a verb has an action of bending or stooping. And so it's the idea of bending or stooping in an act of kindness towards somebody of an inferior social position to you. So there's a way that I am higher than this other person and I bend down to that other person so that we are no longer on different levels. I was superior to an inferior. When I give grace, I bend or stoop. And so I'm using my hands and that's not going to show up on a podcast, but there's a picture of it changing the, the grace is a word that changes the social order when we're thinking about
1: the verb of that. So just to state the thing that comes to mind is that when God offers us grace, God is stooping and bending down towards us.
2: just gonna let that linger for a second.
1: (laughs) Because I feel like that's I feel like that's powerful imagery in thinking about God moving, God changing God's position with us. And and that's why
3: that's why it now makes so much sense that it gets paired with eyes and being having uh receiving grace in someone's eyes because that helps you see the person. If you're bending or stooping down to their level, that helps you see them. And so now they can have grace in your eyes because you can see eye to eye because I'm no longer positioning myself as higher than I'm stooping down and equalizing things. And now we can see one another and
1: we can move forward differently as we're seeing one another. I mean, I don't know what to do with it. Cause like partly I want to go, well, I don't want to think that I think of myself as like superior that to other people. Like I, like that makes it a little bit hard, but I, what I do think about is that when I work with folks who are incarcerated, it's really helpful for me to um, keep in the front of my mind that there's always a story that like they have a story and I mean, so far, a hundred percent, if I hear their story, I understand how they are, where they are. Like, there's never a time where I'm like, <laughs> like their story doesn't change something and how I like understand who they are. And I think in some ways, like listening for somebody else's story or being curious about a person changes your posture. Mm. And so I don't, it, it doesn't feel like superiority or inferiority, maybe uh, more freedom, less freedom. Maybe, I, don't, like, I, I, yeah. I just like the way
3: you phrase it. Can I change my posture and look at the story through someone else's eyes?
2: Well, and also that posture change, Lisa,
0: it's not only the posture change, but it's the action behind the posture of you're willing to ask questions, get curious and listen, as opposed to, well, let me tell you how you got here and how you can get yourself out. Right. Like, here's the list of things you should change about you in order to become a healthy member of society. Like, no, you're there to listen and then to dignify
4: mm-hmm.
0: and to honor. Um, and that is, that is a grace, right? That is a grace. Right.
3: Beautiful. And maybe, and maybe what we change is the word. And so in the ancient world at this time period, inferior and superior aren't value judgments. There's social standings, and we still have that today. And maybe we could use the word privilege. Can I recognize where I have more privilege than another human, and can I change my posture and see things from their eyes?
0: Okay, but pause. Even what you're saying, you're saying that this, you know, th- these this this hierarchy of of, of in, in the society is about. It's not about value. It's just about position. The crazy thing is that with privilege, one of the arguments for privilege being a good thing, and I am not advocating for that in the slightest, but one of the arguments is that, no, I actually have earned and have more value, and my privilege is, um, is the result of that, right? Whether it's, it's my people that look like me, either it's my work ethic. And like that is the argument is that I actually do have more value and I do have the authority to say more because I've earned it or because I've I'm divinely um, given it. And so what you're saying is that even when there was a hierarchy within the society in that time period, it wasn't value based, which is if we just grasped that idea, it would change those with privilege and those with not and what do we do with that privilege because if it's not about value and it's just about the result of how society has arranged itself at this time well goodness it's like then I'm just responsible for what I do with that privilege am I going to be a Boaz am I going to be someone who is a mighty person of valor and worth and and valiance that is going to try to offer grace or Am I something else? And and I think just taking away the value piece is so huge.
3: I think maybe that value piece then is what tra- takes us to this conversation about gleaning. How has, how has Boaz handled the wealth that he has? And how might that even kind of tell a different story about how you hold something like wealth or privilege or power in a way that is different than accumulation and and earning and striving kinds of conversations.
0: That wraps up episode four of this first season on the book of Ruth as we make our way through chapters one and two. As we indicated, the fifth episode will be diving into this idea of gleaning and the significance it plays in the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and how their relationship is shaped by this dynamic practice where the people of Israel are called to look out for one another we'll see you next week